All right, I invite you to turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 2 this morning. Mark chapter 2. Um, when Jesus was attempting to encourage his disciples, he had told them that he was going to be, be leaving them in John, the Gospel of John. And uh, the text says that they responded with sorrow, deep sorrow. One of the ways that he encouraged um, the disciples was to say that he was going to send the Spirit to them. And John chapter 16, he gives the purpose of the Spirit's ministry in our world today. He says, he, that's the Holy Spirit, will glorify me. The Spirit glorifies Jesus, the Son. And it's our prayer that as we focus on Mark 2 and Mark 3, that the Spirit will do that in our midst today, that Jesus will be glorified, that you will appreciate him in a new way, in a fresh way, and you'll be encouraged by the work of the Son of God. So look at Mark chapter 2 and Mark 3. I know it's been two weeks since we've been here uh, in this text, but we come to the last of 10 ways that Jesus demonstrates his own authority in Mark's gospel. We say, finally, to the end, right? Well, in these chapters, we've seen different ways that Jesus uh, was authoritative. The scribes and the Pharisees may have thought that Jesus was trying to undo everything for which they stood, Judaism stood, but Jesus is just demonstrating his authority as the Son of God. Uh, in this text, Jesus is not honoring food laws that the Pharisees would be very concerned with, and uh, he's doing so by eating with tax collectors and sinners. Jesus is demolishing customs related to fasting. Looked at that two weeks ago. And in our text, at the end of chapter 2, verse 23, into the beginning of chapter 3, verse 6, this week uh, we will learn that he is rejecting one of the most significant external marks of the Jewish system. The Sabbath. The Sabbath was very important to the Jewish people because Moses himself, their patriarch, required Sabbath observation for the Jewish people in the book of Exodus. And so if Jesus messes with the Sabbath, it's like he's removing another important badge in which the Jewish people prided themselves. You know, there were certain practices that they wore like badges. They were markers of their identity as a people, as the people of God. And so from the Pharisees' perspective, Jesus just keeps removing all of the badges. I'm sure some of the Pharisees must have thought, what's gonna happen if he removes all the, bad the badges? What will be left? We'll have nothing left when the truth is they still would have Yahweh left. So we look at this text, instead of these things, Jesus is actually teaching some very important lessons. This morning, uh, we'll finish chapter two and begin chapter three with two stories about the Sabbath. And in both cases, Jesus rejects Sabbath regulations because of higher and pressing priorities. So let's look at the first one of these stories, verses 23 through 28 of chapter 2. 
It says, one Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. (coughs) And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord even over the Sabbath. This story uh, comes in two stages in this paragraph. And so uh, the first part of this paragraph, you see the disciples are accused of breaking the Sabbath in verses 23 and 24. So we look at those verses, uh, we see in those, those first two verses that the Pharisees are up to no good again. This time they are making observation. They, they seem to be really good at that making observations about the righteous or lack of righteous acts in other people. Perhaps you've met someone like that before. Well, regardless, they observe the disciples doing something that they feel that is inappropriate. The text says that the disciples are plucking heads of grain on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees think that this is not lawful to do. Okay, so let me just make a few few observations just theologically uh, across the scriptures about what the disciples are doing here. Uh, first of all, I would say that, that what they're doing is not unlawful. It is not unlawful to pluck heads of grain from someone else's field. In our modern uh, era, we might think, man, what are they doing? I mean, this is like Jesus and the disciples, and they're just like stealing food from people in fields. I mean, is this even right? Well, Moses had made that quite clear back in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 25. You don't need to turn there. We'll turn to another text in a moment. But Deuteronomy 23, 25, this is what Moses said. He said, if you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. Okay, so I'm not an expert in agriculture or farming or anything like that, especially when you go back like three or 4,000 years. But what, what, what Moses is saying here is if you just find yourself in your stranger's field, you can go ahead and you can pluck things from the edges of that field with your hands. You just can't use a sickle because then you're like really, you know, taking advantage of the system. Okay, this is what Moses said. So what the disciples are doing is following Jewish custom. It's not like it's wrong for them to be plucking by hand, things in a farmer's field. But uh, secondly, I would observe that the Pharisees knew that, so they must not have been uh, offended at the practice itself. What the Pharisees are actually offended at is the timing of the disciples' uh, work, their efforts. So they're offended at the fact that the disciples are doing this on the Sabbath, okay? And so uh, what's obvious as you go to the Old Testament Scripture is that the Israelite people we're not supposed to do work on the Sabbath. As a matter of fact, let's go right back to the Ten Commandments themselves. Go back to Exodus chapter 20 for a moment. I want you to look at that text with me. So flip back to Exodus 20, and we'll read that, the, a part about the fourth of the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20, I want you to go to verses 8 through 11. 
okay? I love hearing your little pages turn there. It's, it's awesome. Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11. Okay, if you want to find the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament, where do you go to find them? Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. Okay, they're restated in Deuteronomy to a second generation of people. Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5. When Exodus 20, verse 8, we see this commandment. It says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it, you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. There's a command from God. Moses does not allow them to do any work on the Sabbath. And he, of course, if you look at this carefully, uh, in the middle to end of this text, he, Moses kind of roots this or grounds this in God's rest in the creation mandate, very beginning of your Bible, when God rested on uh, the seventh day. So that's what Moses said about work. The Pharisees must have then interpreted what the disciples were doing as work. Okay, so the disciples, and you can go back to Mark chapter 2. We're done with Exodus 20. Go back to Mark 2. So what the disciples are doing, taking heads of grain, perhaps rubbing the chaff away so that they can eat it, the Pharisees are calling that reaping and harvesting, hence its work. Perhaps they'd even added this to their oral law, you know, their set of guidelines to protect against disobeying one of the commands of God. You can't go through a farmer's field, but this is how the Pharisees interpreted this. Again, have you ever interacted with people who loved rules and held other people accountable? seemed as if they were constantly cranking out new rules that you weren't even aware of. I can imagine the disciples here, you know, come on. I mean, we're hungry. We haven't eaten for hours. Like, don't you have something better to do than to just follow us around with like your little rule book and, you know, and just keep confronting us like this about violations? Well, regardless, uh, Jesus responds in verses 25 through 28. So I said the text breaks up in two ways. The disciples are accused of breaking the Sabbath. Then Jesus gives a threefold response, okay? And his response starts with a counter question. This is normal for Jesus. He's asked a question. He responds back with a question. His counter question is in verse 25. Look at that in your Bible. It says, and he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And so what Jesus does is he asks the Pharisees a question about the Old Testament, about what David did in 1 Samuel chapter 21. David is with his followers. They're fleeing. They're on the run from King Saul, and they're famished. 
They haven't had food for quite some time. And so David goes into the tabernacle, the outer courtyard of the tabernacle, and he asks the priest for some food. The priest, Abiathar, goes and he gets some, uh, it's called the bread of the presence or the showbread. Okay, and the bread of the presence was 12 loaves of bread, which represented the 12 tribes of Israel and God's blessing to each one of those tribes. But there were very restrictive guidelines on what was to happen with that bread. It would be made every Sabbath day, and at the end of the week, the, uh, the priests would eat it. No one else was allowed to eat it, but David and Abiathar make this executive decision. They override this custom to feed David and, and the hungry men who were with him. Now, it's very interesting to me as we continue to go throughout Mark's gospel, we won't take the time to do this, but later on in the book, Mark will make a direct comparison between Jesus and King David and say that Jesus is greater, uh, is a greater king than David. And so I think in this text, what's going on and what Jesus is beginning to do with this question um, is he is suggesting that, you know, if David broke Mosaic legislation to provide for his hungry men, it is nothing to Je- for Jesus to do the same for the men who are accompanying him, his followers. But then in verse 27, Jesus makes it even more clear by giving them a proverb. So you look in verse 27, and he said to them, here's the proverb, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So instead of Jesus furthering, further developing the thing about David and Jesus and who's greater, he moves his argument along the lines of this proverb. And I think the proverb is pretty simple. I think what Jesus is saying with this proverb is that, you know, the creation of human beings occurred before the creation of the Sabbath. Adam, of course, is made on the sixth day of creation. The Sabbath is given as restriction on the seventh day. God rests from all his labor after that. And and so Jesus is is doing something, I think, that's very logical here. He's saying, you know what? God did not create the the Sabbath day of rest, uh, or he did not create man for the Sabbath day of rest, but he created the Sabbath for man's well-being, for the well-being of humanity, for their rest, for their relaxation, for their comfort. And so that's what Jesus is doing with the proverb. And that leads to a, a final conclusion in verse 28. It says, so the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now, I think verse 28 is actually a bit of a challenge for us in understanding. I mean, the, the statement is clear enough. Jesus is the ruler or sovereign over the Sabbath. Okay, that's like simple. The hard part is the word so at the beginning of the verse. Because the word so shows you that this verse, this idea, is in some way connected to verse 27. So what Jesus says in verse 27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, somehow results in this logical conclusion, this implication that he draws from it. But uh, perhaps I think the most interesting thing to pursue with verse 28 is whose conclusion is this? And you could go a few different ways. Is, is this what Jesus concludes? So Jesus, so the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Or another way of taking it, and the way I actually do, is, is this what Mark, the gospel writer, concludes? 
okay? And so I've gone back and forth on this a few times, but I think verse 28 in my Bible, I, put, I underline, I put Mark's conclusion. It's kind of like a narrator's comment at the end. Here's, there's this big dispute between Jesus and the Pharisees, and Jesus gives a proverb. You actually might call it more than a proverb, an authoritative statement from the Son of God. Another way Jesus could make this statement is, I, made, uh, I did not make man for the Sabbath. I made the Sabbath for man. Authoritative command, that proverb. Jesus changes it all up. And so Mark says, Mark the gospel writer comments on this. So Jesus, the son of man, is Lord even over the Sabbath. It's a powerful, powerful uh, conclusion here. Thus, this is, I think, another Markan way of demonstrating Jesus' authority. He can do what he wants, not only with unclean spirits and demonic beings. He can do whatever he wants with forgiving sins. He can do what he wants with eating with sinners and with fasting laws. He can also do whatever he wants with Sabbath observations because he is the Lord over it. That is, he is God. He created the world, and he created the very concept of the Sabbath. The Sabbath is nothing without him. He can do what he wants with it because he owns it. So Jesus issues this authoritative proclamation, I did not make man for the Sabbath, but I made the Sabbath to serve man. I think it would be good for us to momentarily pause here and to consider how we might relate then to the Jewish Sabbath. Last few weeks, as we've gone through things, we went through fasting two weeks ago, now we go through the Sabbath. We've come to some, I think, some kind of interesting and difficult or sensitive subjects to comment on when we come to application. So I don't know that I've ever put so much work into application than I have the last few weeks. And so what I'd like to do for just a moment is I'd like to ask, or I would like for, to try to answer the question, should we celebrate the Sabbath? Okay, and I'm going to preface this by saying, what I'm going to give you is my personal opinion as your pastor. Okay, you can, you can do this. In your notes, you can put like Pastor Brent's opinion. You can put a box around it, and you can say whether or not you like it, okay? Uh, but only say it to your spouse. All right, but I do have a desire to, to help us from time to time with certain things like this as a church. And so, should we celebrate the Sabbath? And here's, here's my perspective on this. My perspective is that as New Testament followers of Jesus Christ in a different era, we're not Moses, we're not the children of Israel living in that era, we do not need to celebrate the Jewish Sabbath. The ceremonies of the Jewish calendar and the Mosaic Covenant are not requirements for us. We're not under Moses' covenant. We're under a new covenant in Jesus Christ. And the Jewish Sabbath, though, having said that, so I don't think that we are bound to, to, to follow or to celebrate the Jewish Sabbath that occurs on Saturdays. Having said that, I, I want to remind you that when we read that Exodus text, that the Jewish Sabbath was rooted in, in a deeper concept that goes back to 
the creation mandates. God himself rested from work on the seventh day and set that day apart. Now, did God need to rest like that? Now, God did not need to rest, but he set, in my opinion, this is Pastor Brent's opinion, he sets an example for humanity about the need for rest and refreshment. So a, a general weekly day of rest for a believer, I, I, in my opinion, is a good concept, a good thing that we should follow. Having said this, it's not a Jewish Sabbath. It's not on Saturday, but weekly as a day of rest. And if you do celebrate something like this, then I think that our text in Mark's gospel would show us that we should not be like inflexible with it. So like we're never doing good or helping people. And uh, we're going to see some of that in the very next passage. Okay, and so uh, that's how I kind of see the Sabbath. So I'd say, someone asked me, should we follow the Sabbath? Say, no. Well, now I'm not going to follow the Jewish Sabbath, but I think a, a day of rest goes back to creation mandate. God rested on the seventh day, so I think it's good for Christians to have a day of rest as well. So now as we go back to uh, verse, you know, this passage in verses 1 through 6, Jesus rejects Sabbath regulations because of the hunger of his disciples. But the Sabbath controversies aren't done. And in verses 1 through 6, uh, there's another controversy where Jesus rejects Sabbath regulations again, this time for a healing. Look at verse 1. It says, again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And uh, they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so they might accuse him. And he said to the man with a withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of their heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him. How? To destroy him. The story here is told in striking fashion. It starts uh, by setting the scene. Mark sets the scene. We find out that this is a Sabbath controversy occurring in a synagogue. Perhaps this is the next Sabbath. We don't know for sure. But Jesus comes across a man in the synagogue with a withered hand. And then the text says that, they, that there were some people who were watching what he was doing. At the beginning of this text, it just simply says, and they watched. A little bit later on in the text, down verse 6, I think we find out who the they are. The Pharisees and the Herodians. The Herodians are loyal political followers of King Herod or Herod Antipas. And so these two groups of, groups of people are watching Jesus. Now, uh, I'll uh, suggest a little bit of change here for the ESV translation. It says, and they watched Jesus. I don't think the word watched is strong enough. It actually comes from a compound word originally and uh, Rod Decker in his handbook on the Greek text said that it could or should be translated either they watched him closely or watched him maliciously. I mean, later on in the same verse, it tells us why they're watching. It says, so that they might accuse him. 
So again, this is just like the Pharisees. It's their nature. They're pompous, self-righteous experts in legalistic rules and theological viewpoints. And so they're eyeballing Jesus to see if he will slip up in some way. Danny Aiken, I think, describes this very well. He says, uh, when, when he describes the, the danger of this sort of spirit, he says, when you have a legalistic spirit like the Pharisees, you become critical, always on the lookout for what is wrong, seldom on the lookout for what is right. The Pharisees are now eyeballing Jesus, watching him carefully to see if he messes up. And so men and women, I think that this is, a, this is an issue that could be true of any person. I think even believers saved by grace can become too confident in their own righteousness, in their own righteous acts, or too confident of their own viewpoints and look at other people in this way with this legalistic eye. I pray that would not be true of us. At this point, I, I, I can imagine Jesus and the Pharisees getting a bit disturbed. Or, I'm sorry, Jesus and the disciples getting a, a bit disturbed at the Pharisees. I mean, you know. Come on, you, you, know, you just gave us such a hard time about the food thing. Then like our next Sabbath interaction with us, you're like giving us a hard time about this man that everyone knows needs help. I mean, don't you think you could just like put your rule book aside for a little while and look at this man's arm? He needs help. And so then after this, Mark adds some important details in verses three and four. And he actually adds two things here that you can see very clearly. If you look in your text, you can, you can mark these out in your Bible in verse 3. The, the two things that Mark adds here are two statements that Jesus makes to other people. And so it's very parallel. Verse 3, and he said to the man, verse 4, and he said to them. Okay, so Mark's going to add two things to the story. He's going to have Jesus talking to the man, verse 3. And he said to the man with a withered hand, come here. Again, I would suggest a little different translation than come here, and perhaps some of your Bibles have this a little differently. It could be literally translated this way, stand up in the middle. That's what the words mean. Stand up in the middle. So Jesus sees the man with a withered hand. He observes him in the synagogue. He says, stand up in the middle. I think what he's saying, stand up in the middle of the room. Okay, the primary room in the synagogue. So stand up in the middle. Now, what Jesus is going to do with the man, you know, if he doesn't heal him, uh, his actions will be quite embarrassing. Because now, So now the man is front and center in the middle of the room. Then Jesus asks or makes a statement to the Pharisees where he asks them a probing question. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? And of course, the Pharisees don't want to answer this question with the man standing up in the middle of the room. He's got a withered, crippled hand, and they refuse to say anything. I mean, they want to talk about legalistic rules and benchmarks. They're uncomfortable with this conversation. And so the text says, they remain silent. That leads Jesus then to, to heal the man. 
to take whatever consequences will come his way for doing so from the Pharisees. So look at verse 5. And he looked around at them, the Pharisees and Herodians, with anger, grieved with their hard hearts, and said to the man, imagine this, standing in the middle of the synagogue, stretch out your hand. Stretch out your hand. Why does Jesus say stretch out your hand? Well, the text doesn't tell us that Jesus actually touched him or grabbed him or anything. Jesus simply says, for the man to be healed, and he was healed. The reason I think Jesus has the man stretch out his hand in the center of the room in front of all the people is so that when this miracle is performed, everyone in the room will see it. Do you imagine that? Weak, crippled arm, not functioning at all, healed in front of your eyes. You would think that everyone would go away responding with joy and grace, right? But in verse 6, we see the response of the Pharisees and the Herodians. So as we come to this part of the text, this obvious miracle done in the presence of all of them, front and center, leads the Pharisees and the Herodians to hold counsel together, I would add this, on the Sabbath, no less. I mean, you want to talk about a Sabbath violation. I've got one for you. How about scheming to kill a man on the Sabbath? Unfortunately, the Pharisees and Herodians are so blinded by their own self-righteousness, they don't even recognize that the, the, the anger and, and the bitterness that has welled up in their own soul regarding this man. And so in my Bible, I've circled the words, do good from Jesus. Look up, look up at verse four. Sorry, I should have said this, verse four. The question, is it lawful? Jesus asked this question. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? I mean, I think those words should be very ironic by the time you get down to verse six. And so I circled the words, do good in my Bible. I draw a line to verse five. Jesus does good on the Sabbath. He heals a man, stretched out his hand, and he was restored. But then I've also drawn a circle around the word kill. I've drawn an arrow down to verse six where the Pharisees and the Rhodians take counsel on how they might destroy, that is, how they might murder or kill Jesus. The true Sabbath violators are the ones scheming to kill Jesus. Well, perhaps like the Pharisees, you have experienced anger in your heart this week or in the past few months against one of the brothers or the sisters in this room. Perhaps you grew angry because they did not agree with you or your viewpoints. So, you looked at them closely. You watched them carefully, ready to pounce on any inconsistency or character flaw that you might find in that person. I say, instead of responding like the Pharisees, what we should do in moments like those is we should pray. We should pray that that brother, that sister for whom Christ died, 
would not fall into sin, that they would never fall into sin. We should pray that God would be sweet to that person, that they would be fulfilled in their relationship with Christ and love them unconditionally in a spirit that understands the grace of God. Men and women, I've heard it said about Colonial Baptist Church before I ever got here that we are grace people, people who love grace, God's grace, God's grace poured out on sinful and ignorant human beings of whom I am the chief. I am a sinner saved by grace. And so may we not lose sight of that. May we love other believers here, be grace people, constantly on the lookout for what God is accomplishing positively here for the glory of God in the lives of other people. We look through this text, we just rejoice in the perspective of Jesus here. Let's pray together. Lord, I'm so thankful for the text of Scripture. I'm thankful for the authority of Jesus. I affirm Mark's conclusion. We are talking about, we are talking about the Lord of the Sabbath. He's over it. He created it. He can do what he wants on the Sabbath. And so, Father, I affirm the authority of the Son, Jesus Christ. And I confess before you that it is a pleasure and a joy to serve one who is the Son of God. Father, then I pray for our people as we attempt to serve you faithfully. I pray that we would be grace people that we would be people who love the Lord, that we'd be people who always remember our own human sinfulness, always remember our own limitations, that we would recognize that uh, none of us fully understand theology, that none of us is perfect from week to week. So, Father, when we see a brother fall, may we encourage them and love them and not look down on them. We look to support and help them. Or Father, when in our Christian experience there ever comes a place where someone disagrees with us and our thoughts or our views on some matter, this or that, I pray, Lord, that we be grace people. People who are reminded of the fact that we need your spirit to reveal these things to us because left to ourselves, we would not even receive the things of God. Lord, help us to be grace people reminded of the the things you've forgiven us of. And may we be eyeballing, looking at people for ways that we can affirm them and rejoice in what God is doing in hearts and souls at Colonial Baptist Church. We thank you for this, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.